God led me to 1 Corinthians 15. And so if you have a Bible, you're welcome to open up to 1 Corinthians 15. But I always want to start out by asking, what do you think is at the center of our faith, at the center of the Bible? You know, if you could sum it up into one basic idea, um, in my opinion, I really think it's the gospel. It's the message of redemption. Throughout the Bible, from the beginning to the end, you see this theme that God created us in his image for relationship uh, with us. He, he wants us to be in relationship with him. But then, of course, we fell. We all have chosen to go our own way. That's another big theme as a part of the gospel. But because of God's love, he sends his son uh, to die, to live, to die, and to raise from the dead on our behalf. And then he offers this free gift to us where we can take his life and his righteousness, and he takes our sin and what we've done wrong in terms of turning from God, and he goes to the cross with that. He, he, so it's, it's, it's like we were put on the cross, and it's like we were buried, and it's like we were risen to life. And so it's this exchange that happens. I think that's a big theme of the Bible. And what's at the center, the core, though, of the gospel, I believe it's the resurrection. It's, it's this idea, a simple but crazy idea, that Jesus literally walked on the earth just like all of us. He lived a life. He was crucified and killed on a cross. He, w- he, he died. He was put in the ground in a tomb, and three days later, his heart started beating, his lungs filled with air, and he got up, and he got out of that grave. And, and that is the central idea of Easter, and I think it's the central idea of the gospel. And, and in fact, uh, because it's so central, if it didn't actually happen, then the whole thing falls apart. The gospel can't be true. Um, God's word can't be true. It all stands on that. In fact, I got a, 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 a quote from Billy Graham, who's a famous evangelist. You may have heard of him. He put it like this. He said, if I were an enemy of Christianity... I would aim right at the resurrection because it is at the heart of Christianity. And the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says exactly the same thing. Verse 17 and 19, he says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. If If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people must be pitied. What he's, what he's saying there is that if, if Christ didn't actually get out of that tomb, then Christianity is false. It's a waste of time. And, and, and people should feel sorry for Christians. That's, that's what he's saying. But, but, but if it's actually true, but if it's actually true that he did get up out of that grave, after living a life and even predicting that would happen, you know, while he was living, he said, I'm going to die, I'm going to be buried, and on the third day, I'm going to rise again. So he predicted it into the, fu- in the past. It actually happened. If that is true, then I think that's someone we need to listen to. That's someone that we need to, like, base our, you know, follow and base our lives on. The resurrection, I believe, is proof. It is absolutely proof that everything he said and taught was true. Starting first and foremost with the truth of the gospel, that we are guilty on our own. 
that we've all done wrong on our own. We deserve punishment on our own. In fact, we can't pay off what we've done. So he pays it for us on our behalf. And then he goes to the cross on our behalf, takes our sin and pays the price that we deserve, and then rises up from the grave to give us new life. Uh, it says in John 3, 16 and through 18, the same idea. I've got it on the screen. It says, for God so loved the world. There's that idea of the love of God that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God paid the ultimate price, like, like the price tag couldn't have gotten higher for God in order to redeem us. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And if we go back to 1 Corinthians 15, the, the Apostle Paul says something very, very similar to that those verses in John. Uh, starting in verse 3, it says, he says, For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received. So he's about to tell them what, what we believe. Okay? And the, the, the part that comes here next, um, most scholars uh, actually could uh, believe that Paul is actually quoting from something else that was written even before his letter to the Corinthians. And they believe it was actually one of the earliest creeds that was ever written. You, you might have heard of like the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed, and these were early statements of faith, essentially, like where the, the church would say, here's what we believe. We're going to summarize what we believe. And it was a helpful way that, you know, Christians in those days, especially, you know, everybody didn't have a Bible. Uh, we didn't have printing presses. It was, it was very uncommon to have this, but you had a statement that you could memorize and say, hey, this is what we believe. This is what we stand on. And so he's going to make several statements that are creedal statements, like foundational statements to, to, to what we say. And, and one of the things that I think is fascinating about this, and, and scholars think that this, this creed actually came like within a couple of years uh, of, of after Jesus' death. So Corinthians, was the letter was written uh, much longer after that, but right after his death, they, they, they wrote this creed. And there's several things, I won't go into the details, that give evidence for that. But one of the things I think is fascinating about this creedal statement is that all Christians around the globe and throughout time have believed these essential truths. Um, you know, there's a lot of denominations and a lot of different churches out there. You got Catholics and Protestants and uh, Eastern Greek Orthodox and such. But all Christians have believed these basic truths from the very beginning consistently. Now, there's some differences on some of the side stuff, like, like secondary kinds of stuff, but these essential truths, all Christians have always believed. So let's go ahead and go into it. He starts them off with each with a that statement. Number one, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. Number two, that he was buried. Number three, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. And number four, and that he appeared. Now he's going to list a number of people where he physically appeared to them. First to Cephas, which was the Aramaic name for Peter. Then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. 
Then he appeared to James, and James was, is understood to be uh, Jesus, one of Jesus' uh, stepbrothers. Then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And that's the Apostle Paul talking about himself there. So there's four basic parts of this. Number one, Jesus is the Messiah. He died for our sins. Number two, he was buried. Number three, on the third day, he rose again. And number four, he appeared physically to a whole bunch of people that actually witnessed him alive. And if you notice, throughout this, there's, there's two evidences that he points to in this, two evidences. Number one, he, a couple of times he says, as is stated in the scriptures, and also he points to the evidence of witnesses. So he said there's eyewitnesses. So let me just talk about those each um, one at a time. The idea of pointing back to the scriptures, when this letter was written, they didn't have the full you know, Bible like we have today. Um, they, what they had in those days was just the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. And um, so when he says the, in the scriptures, he's pointing back. He's saying, look, all these, these texts of the past, they all are affirming these ideas. And, you know, one of the things to me, you know, as somebody who's studied the Bible for a long time, seminary, all those things, I, the more I study the Bible, the consistency of the gospel message is just remarkable. From the very beginning all the way through the end, these four basic ideas, the essential ideas of the gospel message, in other words, God's redemptive plan for humankind is consistent throughout the whole thing. You know, um, this past Friday night, uh, we got to participate in a, in a uh, Jewish Seder service, uh, which is celebrating the Passover. And, um, you know, the Jewish people have been celebrating Passover and, and doing and participating in this, this ceremony, ceremonial meal, for 3,000 years. And God gave them this ceremonial meal to help remind them and to remember all that God had done for them in rescuing them out of slavery in Egypt. And, and he rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. Huge, amazing story. Tons of incredible things happened. He led them out of Egypt and to eventually to the promised land. And all of the, I mean, there's so many themes through that story that are pointing towards the ultimate redemption that God had in mind in Jesus Christ. And, the, and, and not only the ultimate redemption from the ultimate slavery, which is sin and death, but also towards the ultimate promised land, which is life and life eternal. And it's just incredible, all the themes and ideas. And I want, I want to uh, just look at one passage in particular. Uh, Isaiah the prophet in, in chapter 53, long before Jesus, this is what he wrote. He says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There's right there, those basic themes that I was talking about. The basic theme of we've all turned away from God. And then God took that sin and puts it on the one. Talking about that one in verse 7, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. All pointing forward. And the rest of that chapter is just remarkable. The consistency and the connections between that prophecy in the past and what Jesus did. As if God was working on this amazing, remarkable plan throughout history. And I'm reminded as well about, uh, you know, John the Baptist he uh, was the precursor. He prepared the way for the arrival of the Messiah and the arrival of Jesus. And 
He was this you know, kind of wild and crazy guy that was out in the wilderness teaching people about the kingdom of God and how it was at hand. And people would all flock out to see him. And then Jesus comes on the scene, and he goes out to see John the Baptist. And when John the Baptist sees him coming, he points to Jesus, and John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. In that one sentence is packed from the entire Old Testament. It's, it's unbelievable. I mean, just, it's just incredible what God has done for us, all pointing towards what Jesus has done. And then secondly, he talks about a, a bunch of eyewitnesses. It says that he, he appeared before hundreds of different people, uh, Peter, the apostle Peter, all the apostles. It says 500 people at, most t- at one time. It even uh, says, hey, guys, some of these people are still alive. In other words, if you wanted to go check them out, you could, you could go uh, talk to them and, and hear what they had to say and hear directly from them, which, by the way, uh, Luke did. We find that out at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke that he went and investigated and talked to all these people so that he could write the Gospel of Luke and then also Acts. And there are a lot of really strong evidences out there that, that show that Jesus actually lived, that show that the Roman Empire crucified him on a cross and he was buried. And then lots of other evidences that mysteriously the, the tomb was empty. They had no way of finding, you know, there was this mystery, what happened to the body? And, and there are a lot of things that can go out there, you know, that are out there in terms of evidences to look at. And I don't want to go into the detail on that right now, but I'll just talk about a couple quick things. Number one that's talked about is this, this idea that um, if he died and if he was in the ground, why is it that all the powerful opponents didn't just get his body out? Like they, they could have ended Christianity instantly just by getting the body out. It's like, here, hey, everybody, here, he didn't rise from the dead. It's not true. Uh, another one that you hear a lot is how is it that all these apostles who say they witnessed him alive could spend 40 years of their life uh, going out there and risking their, their lives to hide him? And these, these guys were beaten, put in prison, I mean, persecuted left and right, all kinds of things. Now, there are people that will martyr themselves for what they believe, but, but these guys were eyewitnesses, so they, it wasn't just something they believed. They, they knew it. So if it was a lie, why would they suffer so much for so long? And I, I've got a, an amazing quote I came across this week. Chuck Colson, I don't know if anybody's ever heard of him, but he uh, got famous through the whole Watergate scandal you know, back in the Nixon era. And he was one of the top guys in the Nixon administration. And he, he spent a lot of time in jail because of his involvement in Watergate. While Chuck Colson was in prison, he heard the gospel and he became a Christian. And then when he got out of prison, he said, I'm going to spend my life, he, like his eyes were open, not just to the gospel, but also to our prison system. And so he spent his life um, doing prison ministry, charity, uh, prison reform, justice reform, all those kinds of things. And uh, he, he wrote this statement, I think is fascinating. He said, I know the resurrection is a fact and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Every one was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate, Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me that 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. You know, and so much more could be said on those kinds of things and evidences that, that point towards the historical, literal fact that he rose from the dead. 
And if you want more information, I can point you to some resources if you want to do research on your own. But there's another proof that I think is also powerful, and that's the, the next place the Apostle Paul goes in 1 Corinthians 15. And that's the personal testimony of our lives. So, in other words, I have encountered the gospel and the truth of what Jesus has done for me, and it's changed my life. And, and I know so many of you as well, and that's true, and I love hearing your stories. You know, I, I, I can't ever get tired of hearing how Michelle found Jesus. It's like I love hearing that story. His life was changed. Look at what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church. In other words, like, remember, this guy is the ringleader trying to end this new thing called the way, Christianity. He was the biggest opponent, the biggest enemy. And he's pointing back to what he was and what he had done wrong. Verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. In, in other words, he's saying, I worked like I was like the hardest worker against him, and then because of what God did, I became the hardest worker for him. I mean, it's like a complete and total transformation. And he's saying, that's all God, not me. That's all God. He's the one that gets the credit for that. Whether then or wh whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. That's what I believe. And, and I hope that is what you believe. Because w if we believe that, it changes our life. It alters our view of the past and, and, and how things have happened in our life. It alters our view of the present and how we live our life and what we're living for, and it, and it alters our view of the future and, 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 and the hope that we can have into the future. Because um, you know, think about it, like how, how would you change your life if you knew the future? Like, like if, if you had the ability to see and know that, okay, this is going to happen, how, how would it impact the way you live your life? And, and I was just thinking about that question, and um, I would go back in time, and, and I would um, – sell the house that I bought in Loudoun County in 2005 rather than waiting because if you remember like the market just like skyrocketed my wife and I got married and we bought our first house in 1998 and we got it for <laughs> cheap compared to what's right now but at the time it was like we were barely being able to pay for this thing and then it's just the market just went up and it's you know on paper it's like wow look at all of this money that we have all this value that we have and it's going up and up and up and up hit the peak in 2005 and you all know then it crashed and it went the other direction but, like, if I knew the future, I could have sold high, and then I, was, I did the math on it. It's like I could, could have taken all the profit that we would have gotten from that house, and if I had bought Apple stock at that time, because it, <laughs> it was still relatively low at that point. I think, I think not long after that, the iPhone came out, or the iPad, or the um, uh, iPod, and I think from then it just jumped. But, like, today, it would be worth well over a million dollars if I had taken that stock. But then I was like, well, wait a, what, what about Amazon? Well, if we did the math on Amazon – and it was actually even higher. It was over $14 million. If, if I'd known the future, I could have done that. But, but the truth is, though, is that, I mean, it's just money. Hey, it's not, I, you can't take it with you. And we know it doesn't make you happy. Um, the Beatles said you can't buy love with it. Um, we, we, we know that it's, it's just temporal, right? It's just this life, right? It's not, it's not ultimate. 
Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 15 to give us a glimpse of the future. I think it's so cool. Verse 51, he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. And what he's talking about there is that there's going to be a point when that trumpet, last trumpet sounds, Jesus will return. At that point, we will be fully resurrected like Jesus was resurrected. He's saying some people are going to be alive, and it's just boom. It's just going to transform them just right at that moment. Some people are going to already be dead, and they'll be transformed out of the ground in some way, alive in this, from a perishable mortal body to an imperishable immortal body. He says, verse 53, for this, imper- this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and the mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. And this is the hope that we look forward to. Because, yes, my life has been transformed by Jesus. But I am still in the, in, there's, I'm surrounded by imperfection. And it starts with my own heart and my own struggle with who I am. But look at what he says. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death. Where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Death, the final last enemy, will be destroyed. God did not create the world to be broken the way that it is. And he is going to set it right. And that's going to be the final thing that he fixes. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But to get into that idea of like, We are under that because we have chosen to walk away from God, every one of us. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus crushed death on the cross for us. And then when he got up out of the grave, he proved that that was true. I I, I can live my life for that kind of person following that kind of God because he is alive. In verse 58, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Following him and the work that he's doing in the world to transform people, to to, to rescue people out of slavery, to bring people from darkness into light, and to work to transform and, and change the world to what it should be is the work that God's doing. And when we join him in that work, the Lord's work, it's not a waste of time. You know, I, I, I can't take a penny with me to the next life, but I can take people with me <laughs> to the next life. And that's, that's the work of the Lord, and that is so, so worth it. That is our life. That's who we are. All because that Jesus is alive. He is literally alive. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, Lord, I thank you so much for, Lord, just this day. Lord, there's such beautiful weather. And, and what an amazing, amazing imagery that you gave us, God, for Friday. And, and just the, 
the darkness and the power and the fear and the scariness of the weather. And um, it's, it's just such a incredible uh, uh, natural picture from a weather standpoint of what happened on that Friday 2,000 years ago when life itself was put in the grave and there was just no hopeless. There was no hope at that point. In fact, all day Saturday, the disciples must have wondered what in the world is going on. Is this even possible? Although we know that they went to the grave um, with plans to embalm the body, not with plans expecting him to rise, even though he said it. And here in this perfect, beautiful day, Lord, to remind us of that perfect, beautiful day where his life came back into his lungs and his blood started pushing through his veins again. And he walked out of that grave to prove that God loves us, to prove that he died on the cross for us, Lord, to prove that he also defeated death by coming back out of the grave. bowed before you, God, just acknowledging our complete and total need for you, God. Lord, we are so, Lord, help us to feel and be mindful of, of our mortality, God, that this life is short, Lord, and, and that you look at our, our lives, you see it all, and you love us, you love us perfectly, and you want to be with us forever in eternity. Lord, I pray that you would help us all to walk with you, God, listening to you as the, as, the, as the king and as our savior and as our friend and as our lover. Lord, you are so good. You are so kind to us. We thank you. Thank you for the cross and thank you for life. In Jesus' name I pray.